The Athletic. Just to let you know, before we get started, the following episode has content some listeners may find upsetting. Everybody believes that uh, we are one football family. And this decision just crossed out this slogan. We are not one football family because nobody cares about Ukrainian clubs. FIFA don't care about us. This is the voice of Sergei Palkin, the CEO of Shakhtar Donetsk. Maybe FIFA doesn't understand what's going on in Ukraine. Maybe Infantina should come to Ukraine to see personally what's going on. In this episode, we'll be taking you into the boardroom and behind the scenes at the Ukrainian football club. You'll hear firsthand just how difficult it is to run a football club whilst your country is under attack. How it's possible to give me just one week to close all deals? I have 14 foreign players. It's technically, physically not possible, you know. And with so much going on behind the scenes, we follow Shakhtar to Spain as they prepare to face the most successful club in the history of the Champions League, the current holders, Real Madrid. All the while, the war still rages on in Ukraine. And in this episode, we'll hear from the mother of a former Shakhtar trialist turned soldier who was tragically killed at the age of just 21. It's 11pm on the 23rd of February. He wrote me a farewell message. He said, Mum, I really love you. And he said that he would speak to his younger brother as well to make him promise to always be polite and listen to me. And things take another unexpected turn for this club currently without a home. Two days before the Madrid match, Putin declares that Shakhtar's home of Donetsk is now Russian territory. There it is, the photo opportunity and the uh, signing of the documents. President Putin has just signed documents to incorporate territories of Ukraine into uh, the Russian Federation. But everyone at Shakhtar remains resilient and determined to fight. He can say what he wants. Shakhtar is from Donetsk, Donetsk is in Ukraine. And we will see, step by step, uh, by time, we will see that uh, Donetsk will be in Ukraine. Yeah, from Donetsk, Shakhtar is from, Shakhtar cannot be from Madrid, from Kiev, from Lvov, from Bilbao. Shakhtar is from Donetsk. Donetsk is part of Ukraine. For The Athletic, I'm Adam Crafton. And I'm tracking Ukrainian football team Shakhtar Donetsk as they traverse Europe on a football mission. All whilst war continues back in their country. I will never, you know, want someone to feel what we felt on this day. Like 5 a.m., my mother came to my room and she was like, the war started. They just defend our land, defend... Um defend Ukrainians. That's why we had an opportunity today to go to Madrid to play football. We are playing for Ukraine, for fans of Shakhtar. We are playing for Donetsk, for Donbas, for Kherson, for all Ukraine. We want to give some positive emotion from the pitch. This is Away From Home. Episode 3, God in the Sky. So before we delve into the inner workings of Shakhtar Donetsk, and how they've been affected by Russia's invasion. Here's producer Abby to explain what the basic structure of a football club looks like when they're not at war. So your average top-flight football club in the Premier League, let's say, has owners at the top. They're the people with the money, the majority stakeholders in the club. 
So it's the Cronkies at Arsenal and the Glazers at Manchester United, for example. And ultimately, they have the final say. Alongside them are other directors and members of the board. Below that top board level is the chief executive or the CEO, who's in charge of the day-to-day running of the club. And it's often the link between the owners and the manager and the first team. This is Richard Arnold at Man United and Vinay Venkatesham at Arsenal. Below that is the manager of the club, or the head coach, who usually reports and works closely with the director of football and chief exec, and, of course, is in charge of the team and the tactics on the pitch. And then, alongside these basic power structures, you have media and comms team, data analysts, coaches, physios, groundspeople, and many others who feed into that core team. And that, in a nutshell, is a football club. So at Shakhtar Donetsk, the owner and president of the club is Rinat Akhmetov. He was born in Donetsk and he comes from a working class background. But now, he's an extremely rich man. In 2021, he was ranked as Ukraine's richest person by the Kiev Post. They estimated him to be worth $11.5 billion. Rinat Akhmetov, whose name may not be familiar to you, he is the owner of both Shakhtar Donetsk Football Club and also business interests that span the metallurgical and mining industries of East Ukraine. That's Dr. Samir Puri. He's the author of Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. His ownership of Shakhtar Donetsk Football Club means that back about sort of eight, nine years ago, they were actually able to buy a large number of quite expensive Brazilian players to try to boost their standing and, of course, to, to help to renovate their stadium in time for the 2012 Euros a stadium which, of course, is now no longer used and hasn't been used since war first broke out in East Ukraine in 2014 because it is surrounded by a war zone. And so you can imagine there's this quite modern stadium just sitting there isolated, slowly being damaged by the shelling taking place around it, gathering dust used in 2012 in the Euros and since 2014 never again. Akhmetov had at one point appeared to be at odds with Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Earlier in his reign, Zelensky had spoken about wanting to clamp down on the nation's wealthiest business people. At one point last year, the president even claimed there were attempts being made to lure Akhmetov into a Russian-backed attempt to overthrow his government. But Zelensky did not provide evidence, and Akhmetov called the claim an absolute lie, as reported by Politico at the time. Akhmetov insisted he would continue to defend a free Ukraine, a free economy, democracy, and freedom of speech. Since the outbreak of war, the pair appear to have made up, with Akhmetov praising Zelensky's passion and professionalism. Akhmetov himself has pledged to rebuild the entire Ukraine, and he has indeed led the way in helping the humanitarian effort across the nation, including donating upwards of $80 million and offering up their temporary stadium in Lviv as a shelter for refugees. At Shakhtar, he's very well thought of by everyone having invested heavily in the club and having stuck with them despite nearly a decade of uncertainty. The key of this success, of the success of this club, is president. He, he lost a lot of business in 2014. He lost a lot of now, more than everyone. But he's still here. He's still with Shakhtar, with the Ukraine. He's in Ukraine from first day. He didn't go out. He go up and wake up with the uh, Shakhtar and uh, how to help Ukrainian, Ukrainian people, Ukrainian country in this difficult moment. And uh, really, for me, he's example of Ukrainian patriot. I, w- I wish that Ukraine had more, more, more person like him. That's Dario Serna, the former Croatia international and a legendary ex-Shakhtar player. 
He's now the director of football at the club, and he works alongside the CEO, Sergei Palkin, on the day-to-day running of the club. They are Shakhtar's equivalent to Edu and Vinay Venkateshim at Arsenal. We don't give up. We want to show to, that we play for Ukraine, that we play with heart. And that voice is the Shakhtar manager, Igor Jovicevic. Jovicevic coaches the first-team players and reports in to both Dario Serna and Sergei Palkin. He's the final piece in what is a fairly typical footballing structure at Shakhtar. But absolutely nothing that these three have done over the past year has been typical. I don't know other clubs who are training and uh, playing now in this situation, or the worst situation. This is, we are specifically this time in Mount. We must uh, travelling together to be together, help each other together. And, uh, you know, you must understand everything. There is up and down, emotional. Uh, so, yes, at the same time, you think about tactic, you think about match tomorrow. Very important. Fans expect fight. Not always win, but fight. Uh, but for the fight, you need emotion. Whilst Jovicevic coaches the team, and tries to bring some level of physical and tactical stability to his players, he and Dario Serna also have the very real task of psychologically supporting their war-stricken group. When you have a group of players, some of whom are very, very young, as you said, some are from the academy. You know, I was talking last week, for example, to Ivan Pechlak, who lost his father-in-law in May. What, what do you do as a sporting director for the, the mental health of these players? What can, I, what can I say to them? I just say, say to them, for me, they're a hero, you know? To play with Sarins, training with Sarins, with Bomb, with this whole travel. Yesterday, we start to, to travel at 11.30 from Lviv. We arrive in hotel 10 o'clock in the evening. But this is our, no one of them didn't say nothing bad. I'm tired, I'm not tired. We know what we must do. We are playing for Ukraine, for fans of Shakhtar. We are playing for Donetsk, for Donbas for Kherson, for all Ukraine. We want to give some positive emotion from the pitch to our, to our uh, citizens, to whole Ukraine, the whole Ukrainian army. You seem very, very strong when you're talking. You've had to sort out a lot of things. Have there been moments when you have just stopped for 30 seconds and had your moment to be fragile and vulnerable? I can stop on 30 seconds, but my head cannot stop and my heart. Dario Serna is a thin, wiry man with dark hair and a big smile. He would ordinarily be in charge of the footballing strategy of the club, including squad building and planning ahead for the future. Instead, most of his attention has been focused on the immediate dangers for the team. This included helping to organise the safe passage of Shakhtar's non-Ukrainian players and their families from the country following the invasion earlier this year. And then his job became even more complicated. When the war broke out in February, FIFA introduced temporary regulations, which allowed foreign footballers to leave Ukraine and register elsewhere for the rest of the 2021-22 season. With the Ukrainian Premier League suspended, this provided foreign players a chance to continue playing football, but it also removed any obligation to remain in a country under attack. However, the Ukrainian league returned this season and over a dozen foreign players remained contracted to Shakhtar. And this is where it gets interesting. Because the clubs say they were prepared to let the players go. But for the long-term financial health of the club, 
they wanted to be able to sell the players on their terms. Cerner and Polkin had initially been optimistic that FIFA would help Ukrainian clubs and find a resolution where they wouldn't end up out of pocket and losing their prized assets for free. But that didn't turn out how Shakhtar hoped. Because on June the 21st, FIFA issued a statement stating that foreign players will have the right to suspend their employment contracts with their clubs until June the 30th, 2023, unless a mutual agreement could be found between the player and their club by June the 30th of this year. Now that all might sound a little bit complicated, but to simplify it, this essentially left Ukrainian clubs such as Shakhtar with only nine days to cash in on their foreign players that they might have wished to sell this summer to recoup vital funds during the war. I want to ask you, as the, I think your position is sporting director of the club, when this summer you have such a big change of the number of players, head coach, and obviously the war. First of all, we have war. Yeah. And because of the war, we, we start to have another problems. But uh, this is part of our life. Uh, but when did you, once the war started, when did you start thinking of players to sign? We just start, we just start to think to to keep the players to don't go away to don't we lost already 14 uh, foreign players because of FIFA, and uh, you know it's uh, for us it's uh, it was you know shock. We want to to stay to, to to protect our Ukrainian players because because we have a lot of huge talent we invest a lot of time a lot of money in all the all these players in one day you when you receive the official document from fifa that all foreign players they are free to go one year alone you don't know what to do sergey palkin shakhtar's ceo is the man who would normally cut the deals for players coming in and out of the club but these things take time how it's possible to give me just one week to close all deals i have 14 foreign players. How it's possible? Uh, I finalize deals. It's technically, physically not possible, you know. I read, um, I don't know, uh, maybe it's in your edition uh, or in other newspapers, I don't remember uh, FIFA saying that we communicated with all stakeholders. But it's not true, completely not true, because uh, they didn't communicate it with uh, our Ukrainian Association of Football. They didn't communicate it with Ukrainian Premier League. They didn't communicate with this Ukrainian club. When the Athletic asked FIFA to specify which Ukrainian stakeholders were actually contacted, the organisation did not respond. Shakhtar have a long history of bringing in foreign talent, improving them, and often selling them on to big European clubs for a healthy profit. Many world-class Brazilians have followed this path, including the likes of the former Manchester City player, Fernandinho, or Manchester United's midfielder, Fred. Another Brazilian who joined Shakhtar before going on to win Premier League titles with Chelsea was Willian. I just played 10 months as a professional in Brazil. Hmm. My dad was, you know, I, I was had a conversation with him about some offers from Europe or Shakhtar. And I, I, I said to him that I don't, I don't want to go to Ukraine. It's too cold there, you know. I decided to go with my dad and we we liked the the project we liked everything the training ground the new stadium they still playing champions league and mm. they was playing champions league every year uh fernandinho was there luis adriano a lot of brazilian players at the end of the third the the, the, the last day I, I i still was in in doubt 
if I sign, if, you know, if I stay or not. And I was on the table with people from, from Shakhtar, you know, the director. And he, he saw my face like, you know, in doubt. And he said, okay, what do, what do you want to, to stay? You want more, more, more money or what? I said, no, no, it's not about money. It's a different country, you know. Brazil to go to Ukraine. But at the, at the end of the day, we decided to stay there. We decided to sign the contract. That was a good time, it was a good time. I won so many trophies. It was a, a good people there. The east of Ukraine may not feel like a natural home for promising young Brazilian footballers. But what it did offer was a portal to European football, to the Champions League, almost like a landing spot, which helped many players, including Willian, to be scouted by larger European clubs. Despite being sceptical of a cold Ukraine before joining, Willian has warm memories of his time at Shakhtar, and he's full of sympathy for their current situation. I feel, I feel sad for them, you know, because they are really good people there, a good country to be in, uh, a country that wants to improve, wants, you know, to... But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult situation. Another Brazilian youngster who joined Shakhtar and was tipped for big things was Tete. He joined the club back in 2019 and he scored 25 goals in 75 games for Shakhtar. He's valued at around 23.5 million euros and he'd been attracting interest from a number of clubs. But following Russia's invasion and then FIFA's ruling, he left on loan to the French club Lyon until June 2023. By then, his contract at Shakhtar will only have six months left to run. So it's very unlikely that Shakhtar will receive any fee for him. Another player that Shakhtar have lost for free is the Israeli international Manuel Solomon. He is also left on loan, this time to Fulham. And under FIFA's ruling, he'll only have six months left on his Shakhtar contract by the end of that loan agreement. Sergei Polkin tells me that Shakhtar actually had a 7.5 million euro transfer fee, both arranged and in place with Fulham for Solomon but that the Premier League club withdrew this bid immediately after FIFA's ruling. Yeah, 7.5 million, and uh, we almost uh, changed uh, contracts, agreed everything, and when FIFA issued this decision, they sent us emails saying that uh, because of FIFA decision, we withdraw our contracts and conditions and everything, and we will take this uh, player, free, like free agent, you know, we take him, and uh, that's it. And there's nothing you can do to stop that? Nothing. Completely nothing. After this discussion with Palkin, I tried to get in touch with Fulham about this transfer. They declined to comment. Both before and after FIFA's ruling, Palkin and Shakhtar tried to get in touch with FIFA, and they even contacted the president, Gianni Infantino, to try and plead for more help for Ukrainian clubs. I mean, when they make this kind of decision, they kill the Ukrainian clubs. That's it. You know, they don't even consider it because... I'm telling you, uh, it's very, very big uh, ne- negligence in decision-making process they did, you know. So in this war, everybody support Ukraine and all Ukrainian organizations, Ukrainian bodies, etc., etc. But how is possible FIFA, a body uh, which is saying that we are one family, I mean, we are one football family, they didn't even pay attention to us completely. You say in your letters to FIFA, which which I've seen, that... For the four players that you reference in the letters, you think that you probably lost around 50 million euros. 
if you will uh, look at direct and indirect uh, losses, it will be up to 50 million. When presented with Palkin's criticisms, a FIFA spokesperson repeated its claim that it has been in regular contact with key stakeholders in Ukraine. Of course, on a surface level, FIFA's ruling is a necessary lifeline for those foreign players who naturally want to escape the war. Malakoido is a football agent who helped players escape from Ukraine at the start of the war. It is certainly true that players contracted to Ukrainian clubs will be one year closer to the end of their contracts with the club by the end of the 2022-23 season. Many contracts will by then have run out or have a year left, which makes it more difficult to benefit from the sale of players. But we can't be holding a handful of foreign football players at each club hostage because they have a transfer value attached. FIFA's decision was essential in giving players an option. Nobody should be forced to return to a war zone to boost morale, unless they do so by their own free will. Palkin and Shakhtar don't dispute that foreign players should be allowed to leave Ukraine. They just want to find a compromise where they don't lose all of their players for nothing. But with no sign of that compromise from FIFA, they escalated the dispute and they took it to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, announcing in July that they were seeking damages of 50 million euros from FIFA for the transfer fees that they missed out on. Even after this, Shakhtar tried to reach out to FIFA once more and attempt to make an agreement out of court. Hawking told The Athletic in September that Shakhtar sought to contact the FIFA president Infantino to avoid a court date and negotiate a solution. We informed FIFA that we go and uh, we had, uh, after uh, when we informed, we had around 10-15 days to prepare all documents and said to uh, ask them, okay, if you want to uh, sit together with us and uh, to find some kind of peace between uh, us and uh, make some kind of decisions uh, which will help uh, Ukrainian clubs, uh, we want to do it, you know. And uh, even we contacted president of UEFA, he helped us to communicate with FIFA, you know, directly. And uh, yes, we contacted FIFA, but finally FIFA didn't want to communicate, didn't want to sit together and uh, actually send us well, indirect message that they're ready to go for court and uh, they don't need to make any decisions altogether. Polkin is a short, stocky man with ready blonde hair. He often wears glasses. I've spoken with him on numerous occasions this year, and his frustration with FIFA has only increased over time. If you will summarize the whole story, plus FIFA it's uh, some uh, somebody like a god, uh, you know, in the sky. You know, you cannot uh, reach them. I mean, it's like a body, uh, and nobody knows where uh, they, they are located, and if. They cannot communicate with you if they cannot answer you, if they cannot uh, react properly on uh, our questions. You know, I mean, it's difficult uh, for me you know, to understand this organization. Since the annexation of Crimea by Russia back in 2014, Shakhtar haven't been able to visit, let alone play in their home city of Donetsk. In fact, some of their younger players told me they'd only ever seen pictures of their stadium on the internet. It's not just losing players that Shakhtar's hierarchy feels strongly about. Polkin feels the decision to allow Russia to host a World Cup in 2018, even after the 2014 aggression, sent the wrong message to the world. The biggest problem, Adam, the biggest problem of this whole story 
it's uh, 2014 when you know Putin did all this uh, Crimea Donbas and he waited he waited for reaction from European Union from European organization and etc etc and no reaction this is was the reason what uh, what's happened on 24th February you know it was like connected stories you know if in 2014, there will be strong reaction uh, of all uh, the whole European Union, FIFA, and uh, the whole world. I mean, this war will never happen. I am telling you 100%. But when um, FIFA proposed uh, uh, Russia, you know, to host World Cup in 2018, Putin believes and uh, thinks that uh, it's okay. I can uh, do two steps more, and again one step more, and again one step more. It's like connected stories, you know. Polkin feels that FIFA are striking the wrong message, even to this day. Following the invasion of Ukraine, the English Premier League suspended its £43 million six-year deal with the Russian broadcaster Match TV, which was due to commence this season. FIFA, on the other hand, agreed a similarly lucrative broadcast deal with three Russian TV stations back in 2019 to broadcast this year's World Cup in Qatar. It was worth a reported 39 million euros. One of the channels is state-owned. Another is owned by Gazprom Media and ultimately Gazprom Bank. And the third was a station ordered to open by Putin himself. There's no sign of FIFA cancelling this agreement. Everybody uh, stopped in the world to, to have communications with Russia, you know, to, to have some kind of dealing with Russia, you know, business with Russia. And the FIFA at the same time selling uh, TV rights of uh, World Cup to, to Russia, you know. I mean, it's unbelievable what's going on. And uh, and uh, you see that uh, they will even uh, allow to play some friendly games uh, with Russian national team, you know, and etc., etc. I mean, the situation is, is very complicated. And maybe FIFA doesn't understand what's going on in Ukraine, what's happening in Bucha, what's happening in Ukraine, Zoom, and etc., etc. Maybe Infantina should come to Ukraine to see personally. When asked specifically whether FIFA continues to receive income from the Russian TV companies, the organisation did not comment. FIFA were also invited to provide a spokesperson to be interviewed on this podcast, but they did not take up the offer. FIFA, it should be said, did eventually strip Russia of the right to compete at this year's World Cup in Qatar. But this didn't come immediately. FIFA initially attracted criticism when they first suggested the Russian national team could continue to compete if they changed their name and play matches on neutral grounds. But following outrage from a number of European football associations, FIFA eventually banned Russia from the tournament. FIFA and UEFA have today decided together that all Russian teams, whether national representative teams or club teams, shall be suspended from participation in both FIFA and UEFA competitions until further notice. FIFA president Gianni Infantino said the organisation condemns the use of force by Russia in Ukraine. FIFA also announced a $1 million humanitarian donation. But to put that in perspective, FIFA is an organisation that reported $1.6 billion in cash reserves alone in 2021. Shakhtar's CEO Palkin says FIFA's gesture was just to put a tick in the box, to say they've done something for Ukraine. I asked Palkin about the relationship between FIFA President Infantino and the Russian President Putin. After the 2018 World Cup, Putin signed a decree to award Infantino with the Russian Order of Friendship due to the FIFA president's 
enormous contribution to Russia's World Cup. The ceremony took place at the Kremlin in Moscow, and this was now five years after Russia's first aggression in Ukraine. Dear friends, it is uh, an incredible honour and emotion for me to be here today with you and to receive this incredibly prestigious award. Thank you, dear President, and thank all the people of uh, Russia and congratulate you as well for having hosted and organized the best World Cup ever last year. Upon receipt of the award, Infantino said to Putin, this is not the end. It's only the beginning of our fruitful cooperation and interaction. On behalf of the whole football world, which means four or five billion people across the globe, thank you very much. Polkin is also critical that the Russian Football Federation, despite its eventual ban from the World Cup, has retained its membership of FIFA. This means Russia is able to organise friendly matches, even if they can't play in tournaments. In September, for example, the Russian Football Federation confirms the Athletic that a principal agreement had been reached for a friendly match against Iran, and this could even take place before the World Cup in November. This is particularly contentious because the Ukrainian President Zelensky claimed only the week before that seven Iranian-made drones supplied to Russia had been shot down in Ukraine. So a friendly match between Russia and Iran almost feels like the ultimate insult to this war-torn country. How it's possible to play a friendly match with Iran when Iran sell to Russia these uh, drones which bombing our uh, territories, cities and uh, our people? I mean, where is morale of this story? You know? I don't know what Russia should do else uh, that FIFA will react properly. You know? Iran have insisted that they have exercised a clear policy of active neutrality when dealing with the war in Ukraine. As the club grapples with FIFA's decisions, they're left questioning whether the football family really exists. And back in Ukraine, the bleak reality of war rages on for thousands of ordinary families. This is Mariana Sapilo. She's the mother of Vitali, a promising young footballer who once tried out for Shakhtar as a teenager. Vitali was uh, very joyful. He really loved hanging out. He, he played all kinds of sports. He played football from third grade to 11th grade. He planned to have a football career. It's around 12 years old. He had trials at Shakhtar. He always played as part of a team and didn't focus on his own performance. But the coach wanted him to show his individual skills. So Vitaly tried his best to be at the level of everyone else. However, the coach demanded more. But this is our Vitaly in a nutshell. He wants to be a leader everywhere. He wants to be a captain of the team. Coming back from Shakhtar, he was a little upset that he didn't make it. Probably was more competitive than he thought. In the spring, when he was finishing the 11th grade, we sent the application for him to attend sports school. But one day he came home and said, I want to join the army. We tried to discourage him. I said, how can you change your mind all of a sudden? He said, 
I have a lot of friends who want to serve, and with the times that we're living in, I have no choice. I have to go to serve. Her son had joined the army a few years prior to the war, and like thousands of others, he was part of the resistance when Russia invaded in February. He had been in regular contact with his mum, but on the 23rd of February, he sent a message which alarmed her. It's 11pm on the 23rd of February. He wrote me a farewell message. He said, Mum, I really love you. And he said that he would speak to his younger brother as well to make him promise to always be polite and listen to me. The next evening, at 7pm on the 24th of February, he got in touch again and said, Mum, just don't you worry, we're on our way to Kiev. I wondered how and why. He said, we're going in tanks. In Kiev there are problems and all of our units have been diverted to Kiev. On the 25th of February, at around 10, he managed to call me and he sounded so happy. He said, Mom, you cannot imagine, we fought off a bunch of tanks, they were just coming at us, but we dealt with them. We crushed them all. They destroyed a village here and crushed houses. It was a calamity, but we coped with it. Everything is fine, just do not worry. But that evening, Mariana lost contact with Vitali. After a sleepless night, she eventually got through to one member of his unit. It was the morning of February the 26th. But the next morning, at around 7am on the 26th of February, we couldn't sleep because Vitaly didn't get in touch. There was a mechanic in his unit, and when I called, he picked up the phone but remained silent. He was also injured. He had a concussion. He couldn't hear me well. But that he said, I don't know how to tell you, but our Vitaly is no more. Mariana's worst possible nightmare had become a reality. Vitaly was just 21 years old. He had his whole life ahead of him. So our child was returned to us. The commander from his unit helped with this and Vitaly's body was returned home with keys and phone. We were able to bury him in a dignified way. There were some sons who had nothing left of their body to bury. Our son was at least in one piece. My 
Back at Shakhtar, it's match day three in their Champions League campaign. For many young soldiers and Ukrainian football fans alike, seeing their club carry on and compete against the biggest teams in the world in the biggest competition in European football offers a real sign of hope. And clubs don't come much bigger than the current holders and 14 times Champions League winners, Real Madrid. Their squad is valued at around £754 million. In comparison, Shakhtar's team cost just £72 million. That's the same price as Real paid for just one single player last summer, when Aurelien Chouameni signed from Monaco. It's not only the cost of the squad that's in stark contrast. In the days leading up to the match, Real play out a 1-1 draw with Osasuna in the Spanish La Liga, and they prepare for their match at the multi-million pound Madrid training ground. On the other hand, Shakhtar beat the Ukrainian side FC Metalist Kharkiv 6-1 in Lviv on the Saturday, and then prepare in their temporary training facilities where there are regular air raid sirens. They then make the arduous journey to Madrid via the Polish border and through multiple modes of transport. And two days before the match against the giants of Europe, things get even more absurd for Shakhtar, as Vladimir Putin actually declares that Donetsk, Shakhtar's home city, is now Russian territory. President Putin has just signed documents to incorporate territories of Ukraine into uh, the Russian Federation in this televised ceremony. So once again, he signed the treaties alongside uh, the Moscow-appointed authorities in the four regions of Lugansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia and Kherson. Last week, President Putin of Russia did a press conference where he said that Donetsk is now Russian mm -hmm. territory in his eyes. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow, Shakhtar Donetsk play as Ukraine. Do you guys pay attention to what to what this guy is saying? Is it easy to block it out? Well, he can he can say what he wants. Shakhtar is from Donetsk. Donetsk is in Ukraine, and we will see. Step by step, uh, by time, we will see uh, that uh, Donetsk will be in Ukraine. We are from Donetsk. Shakhtar, is from, Shakhtar cannot be from Madrid, from Kiev, from Lvov, from Bilbao. Shakhtar is from Donetsk. Donetsk is part of Ukraine. That's Dario Serna, the sporting director, speaking once again. He once lifted the Europa League trophy for Shakhtar as a player. And on the day of the game in Madrid, he's optimistic. After a win against Leipzig and a draw against Celtic, he feels that this young and inexperienced Shakhtar side can make a real mark in the Champions League this year, in spite of everything that's happening to them off the pitch. The first two games, you have four points. Are you surprised? Yes. Why? I, I was surprised because uh, it's obviously a new team, young team. A lot of them uh, even play first time in the Champions League. And we have a very difficult group. But after the first game, you know, I was in shock. In nice shock, positive shock, because uh, for us the, the target of the Champions League is to play good, to play our football. And from the first minutes, from the first game, we start to play our football. And we must continue like this. Everybody expect now that we'll pass the group a bit there, but it will be very, very, very difficult. Outside Real's famous Bernabeu Stadium, which is in the Spanish capital of Madrid, I meet two young Ukrainian football fans who are on their way to the game. So we're here outside the Real Madrid stadium before Real Madrid plays Shakhtar. Can you just tell me, first of all, your name and then also your name? My name is Victoria. My name is Sasha. Sasha. And where are you from? We are from Ukraine. Where in Ukraine? Kiev, capital. And are you living in Spain 
at the moment? Uh, after the war begins. And a lot of people have said the journey to escape out of the country. It was crazy. It was like, you know, like a horror movie. I will never, you know, want someone to feel what we felt on this day, like 5 a.m. My mother came to my room and she was like, the war started. And you know, like when you're very sleepy, it feels like it's a nightmare. No, it cannot happen. And uh, after we left the house, we first then realized that it, it actually started. We see the soldiers, we see tanks, uh, a lot of people, everybody's rushing. It was very, very crazy. From the Kiev uh, to our home is like five kilometers. These five kilometers, we were driving seven hours. When we were driving uh, on, on the way from Kiev, other way was the tanks coming to Kiev, Russian tanks. At that moment, we don't know that it was actually a Russian ones. So yeah, it's quite uh, terrifying. Before the match, I also catch up with the Ukrainian journalist, Irina Kozyupa. You might remember her from episode one of this series. So we're back, Irina, for the second away game, this time in Madrid. Can you give an idea of, I mean, you're, you're in Madrid, you've been in Warsaw, you've been in, in Leipzig. Obviously, the, contra- the contrast right now for you to be here in the Santiago Bernabeu Stadium, for the players, even this morning I was speaking with uh, Piatov and he said in the morning he's reading the news about something that's happened in a part of his country and then in the evening he's in a dream stadium. Uh, how does that feel, that contrast? It's very big, it's huge contrast, even it's hard to explain to yourself, it's football like take you from your daily usual life and drop you in some in another world in a peaceful life and then you uh, come back to your like normal new new reality like sirens even when we came was in Lviv before going here it was a siren on the railway station and I thought I hope this would not be explosion this time uh, so it's a really big uh, like contrast. For example, I can like sh- share with you some of my personal story when uh, I don't know in Warsaw or in Leipzig or even here on the breakfast you have like very delicious food, uh, nice coffee. Or yesterday we have some sangria here in the evening. Uh, while this time I like enjoying this like uh, special moments of like daily life. My brother, my sibling, he is on the war, and recently he showed me, shared he with a picture when he and his uh, like comrades, they prepare food on open fire. This picture very encouraged me, and I was so proud of my brother and uh, uh, all our forces that uh, fighting for Ukraine that they just defend our land, defend Ukrainians. That's why we had an opportunity today to go to Madrid to play football. Inside the stadium, the atmosphere is crackling. The Bernabeu is one of the cathedrals of football. It's a bit like the theatre, where fans pay their money and they expect to be entertained. They demand a performance. And on this occasion, Madrid are producing. The Spanish side make a great start. They score two quick-fire goals inside the first 30 minutes. The Brazilian Rodrigo scores the first. Then a wonderful team move is finished off by his fellow countrymen, Vinicius Jr. That comes back to Real Madrid and they lead. 12 minutes gone. Rodrigo, it's been coming since kickoff. Back and he goes to Rodrigo. Vinicius Jr., that's a peach. 
That's a fantastic goal. That's 2-0 Real Madrid. Shakhtar, for the first time in this competition, look what they are. Young, naive, a little bit inexperienced, and perhaps even out of their depth. This is 2-0, but to be honest, it could be anything. But Shakhtar, were they doing that thing again where they, they just refused to go away? And even though Madrid have all the ball and so much dominance, Shakhtar find a way back into the game. They strike back in the 39th minute with a brilliant acrobatic volley, courtesy of the 26-year-old Ukrainian midfielder Oleksandr Zubkov. At half-time, Shakhtar is still in the match. In the second half, Madrid apply more pressure. They hit the post. The Shakhtar goalkeeper makes 12 saves in total. But Shakhtar are hanging on in there. And then comes a golden chance when their young star player, Mikhailo Mudrik, races through. But he just hesitates for a split second and the opportunity passes him and Shakhtar by. For the first time, Shakhtar fall that little bit short. The game finishes 2-1 and Shakhtar are defeated. There's the final whistle. Real Madrid winning it with the two goals from Rodrigo and Vinicius Jr. in the opening half an hour before Shubkov pulled one back. You can't deny the fact that Shakhtar Donetsk fought and fought and fought for club and country perhaps tonight. It's an admirable effort by Shakhtar with their makeshift squad against the biggest football club in the world. Zubkov, who scored their goal, was bought for only £1.8 million from the Hungarian league last summer. Despite the loss, Shakhtar are fighting in every game and they still have a real chance to progress into the knockout stages. We're now halfway through the group stage. And in Group F, after three games, Real Madrid are top, as expected. But Shakhtar, well, they remain second. And remember, the top two qualify for the knockout stages. The problem is that Red Bull Leipzig, the German side who started slowly, are now hitting form. Shakhtar leave the Bernabeu and head back to their temporary home in Lviv, where their fans watched on with air raid sirens never too far away. Meanwhile, off the pitch, the club await news on their court case and they're still yet to receive an official response from FIFA. Shakhtar are digging in, both on the field and in the courtroom. But who knows what Sergei Palkin, Dario Serna, Igor Jovicevic and their team will have to deal with next. Shakhtar is not just a job, this is family. You must the, the show who you are in most difficult moments. It's easy when you win against Real, against Barca. It's easy to be with the team, to be in the structure of the club. When it's difficult, you must show that you are with the team. And I'm part of this family and I'm happy and I will be with them until the end. Next time on Away From Home, I attempt to travel into Kiev. Hi, Adam. You should remain in Poland and postpone any immediate travel to Ukraine. The war takes a shocking turn. The most widespread bombardment since the beginning of the war is in retaliation for Saturday's explosion on a bridge connecting Russia with occupied Crimea. And amid all of that, Shakhtar get ready to host Madrid in their home away from home in Warsaw.
I think the world is excited, uh, excited to play against the champions of the Champions League and the best club in the world probably, so we are excited, uh, we are not nervous, we, are, we want to play, we want to play for Ukrainian people, so our idea is to, to try to do a, a really good job. Away From Home is an athletic media company production. It was presented by Adam Crafton. It was written and produced by Adam Crafton and Jesse Howard, with additional production by Mike Stavry. Sound mixing is by Jesse Howard. Translation by Dima Rebrov. Voiceover by Katerina Kaganska. And research help from Dr. Samir Puri, author of Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. The executive editor is Adrian Moorhead, and the managing editors are Ben Green and Alex Kajelski. For more on this story and to get access to every football story that matters, head to theathletic.com forward slash away from home.